Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Those heart-stopping moments inside a Greyhound bus as a semi-truck slams into a pile-up on the Coquihalla. Survivors say it seemed to unfold in slow motion. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Sophie is off this week, but we begin with new details on that crash. The six-vehicle pile-up just north of Hope last night that injured 29 people. Our Jeff Hastings is live on the scene with the latest. And Jeff, it was miraculous no one was killed. Unbelievable that nobody was killed, Chris. When you look at the wreckage, first responders were telling us afterwards that it's the worst crash they've ever seen, and that's saying something on the Coquihalla. There's still activity here at the scene. We're just across the river from where the crash occurred last night. You can see people clearing up the last of the debris. There's the, the, the wrecked trailer, one of the last semi-trailers that was pulled out. There's a lot of debris from that trailer down. They're just hand-bombing parcels or, or bits of, of, of uh, debris from that trailer up back onto the highway to clear it up but really this time last night give it a couple of hours and it was just an absolutely chaotic scene they were almost off the coquihalla highway into hope when the world slammed to a halt oh my god oh god so we all of us on the bus kind of just braced ourselves and we hit the back of the semi and then we had another semi come up behind us and just kind of scrape the side of us and it flipped into the ditch. There you go. Confusion and eventually evacuation. People helped out by calm first responders. Yeah. Hey, I'm glad you're put onto the rung. Some people wanted off the bus. Some people were crying. People didn't know if they were hurt or not. The bus driver was terrified. He did a fantastic job keeping everybody calm, though. Two Greyhound buses, several semi-tractor trailers, and other vehicles are involved. Across the river, a neighbor heard the first impact and ran outside in time to see vehicle after vehicle crash. No skidding, screeching noise because of snow and ice, just the sound of impact and tearing metal. All I could do was be on the phone and I had 911 coming before the vehicles even stopped moving. And I just saw headlights coming behind me and they're coming so fast, it was like they're, they're going to hit me. A few watched it happen in their rearview mirrors, unable to do anything but brace for impact. And then I watched two vehicles go in beside me and end up on the roofs and then semi came along and the uh, the tail end of it just pushed my truck into the ditch and I felt all the other semis here I felt them hitting my truck or hitting the semi that was my truck was behind. BC Ambulance sent everybody. Ultimately after more information was coming in we had approximately 36 ambulance units. Seven people are sent to hospital in serious condition. 29 hurt in total. 136 escaped relatively unscathed. Then I see a semi-truck on its side basically uh, in the middle of the highway there and I'm like oh my gosh like this is how I die basically and after we're fine I'm like okay you know we hit the bus it was scary but I'm alive. 
Well, Jeff, weather almost certainly was a factor in this, but what else have you learned about what led up to the crash in the first place? Oh, well, I'd like to start with the weather, Chris. That's the interesting part. It got worse after the crash. It was icy, no doubt, but most of the snow, the snow that we saw in the pictures fell after everything had smashed to a halt. What locals are telling me about this immediate stretch of Coquihalla Highway and what we are hearing about what happened last night, just west of us here, just uh, towards Hope, down the Coke, there's a large hill. And when it gets icy, semi-tractor trailers have a really hard time getting up that hill. We're hearing that's what happened last night. A guy couldn't make it up, was backing down, jackknifed, and then blocked the road. And that first Greyhound bus plowed into him. And then the others followed, and we saw what happened. There's much more investigation to come on this, Chris. But uh, lots of crashes on this stretch. Lots of questions being asked. Back to you. No doubt, and some very lucky people tonight. Okay, thanks for that, Jeff. And while there is a good chance weather played a role... Many say accidents on that stretch of highway has a lot to do with conditions and or has little to do with conditions and more to do with the drivers themselves. Tanya Beja explains why safety experts are calling for a reversal in recent increases to highway speeds. It takes nerves of steel to navigate the Coquihalla, conditions unforgiving for drivers who are unprepared. Weather does what it wants when it wants, and it's bigger than you are. Sunday's collision is the latest in a series of crashes on the Coquihalla this winter. Earlier this month, Nicholas Funk was struck and killed while helping victims at the scene of a six-car pileup near Larson Hill. Another eight cars collided there the next day. And just the week before, a bus carrying international students hit the highway median. The tour guide ejected through the front window. People don't see the speed limit as a maximum. They see the speed limit as a suggested minimum. Obviously, you've got cars and driving way beyond the limitations. In 2014, the speed limit was increased along the Coquihalla to 120 kilometers an hour, with variable lower speeds posted according to conditions. But traffic safety analysts say the speeds should be permanently reduced to 80 or 90 in winter. What we need up there is a European model. There is one speed limit implemented for cars, one for trucks. But the European model also incorporates winter condition driving and lowers the speed limits accordingly. Merritt's mayor, Neil Menard, says speed isn't the only concern. He's calling on the province to set higher standards for highway maintenance contractors. Somebody's got to take the bull by the horns, and it, it's got to happen now, right across the province, not just here. The contractors are, are working as fast as possible. They were, in, uh, they were ready for this bad weather. The road had apparently been ploughed 20 minutes before the accident. The Minister of Transportation says she won't rush to make any changes until the investigation is complete. Tanya Beja, Global News. More tonight on the death of a man who allegedly tried to kidnap his child over the weekend. He was tasered by Chilliwack RCMP, and the police watchdog is now investigating if there's a connection. And new tonight, the estranged wife of the man spoke with our Grace Key about why the meeting with his daughter never should have happened. Whether he should have been on the visit or not is irrelevant at this point. My daughter doesn't have a father now. Candace Meadows says her former husband David was a good man and a good father and that his death never should have happened. She said she wanted their four-year-old daughter to have a relationship with him, but she wanted to make sure he was in a healthy place in his life. I was in court. We both had lawyers. I wasn't comfortable dropping her off anymore for the visits because I had just noticed some erratic behavior. And what were you told? That I had to, that it was a court order and I was not to breach the court order. 
On Saturday, David was having a supervised visit with his daughter at a family services center in Chilliwack. Halfway through, he walked out with her, weaving in and out of traffic. Strangers tried to intervene. When police responded to a parental abduction, there was a struggle. He was tasered and later died in hospital. The Independent Investigations Office is investigating and looking for witnesses and video. The police watchdog group looks into all police cases involving death or serious injury. Where's my daughter's father now? There's no need for tasing, I don't think. I don't believe in tasers. I just think that's, that's a cheap, easy way um, to get someone under control. The two were due back in court in August. In March, David was also due in court for breaching a no-contact order involving Candace and her older daughter. He had been struggling with drugs and showed erratic behavior. Two years ago, he jumped off a balcony with his daughter, but she managed to grab a hold of a rail. David was allowed supervised visits for two hours a week. On Saturday, there was a new person supervising the visit. I never saw him that day. If I would have seen him, I would have said there's no way this visit is happening. And I would have taken the consequences. Candace is now focusing on her daughter's well-being. She didn't see any of it. There was actually somebody who intercepted and, and turned her away. So she just, as far as she knows, um, Dada's, that's what she calls them, is just in heaven. Grace Key, Global News. The SPCA is tending to dozens of neglected animals that just came in from a rural property north of Williams Lake. Forty-six dogs and puppies were seized from the property because of a lack of shelter, poor sanitation, and inadequate veterinary care. SPCA officials say the dogs are highly unsocialized and terrified of humans. Rehabilitating them will be a long-term process. The SPCA will be recommending animal cruelty charges to Crown Counsel in the case. And the trial begins for the owner of a shipping vessel that spilled fuel into English Bay back in April 2015. The MV Maritassa, a bulk grain carrier, leaked thousands of liters of bunker fuel into the water, fouling local beaches. The ship's owner, Greece-based Alassia New, uh, New Ships Management, is facing 10 pollution-related charges. The trial is expected to last until April 6th. Significant changes are coming to parking at the Vancouver International Airport. The value lot near the terminal is closing this week. Ted Chernecki explains what you need to know before you go. Imagine getting all this onto the Canada line or even a shuttle bus. But after Wednesday, you will no longer be able to park your vehicle and personally roll all your luggage into or out of the terminal. You can't take all this gear on the SkyTrain, that's not practical. My flight's supposed to leave at 3, so we parked here because it's a lot more convenient. Really? It's shut down for Terrible, good. terrible. One of YVR's most popular and certainly most convenient long-term parking areas is shutting down on February 28th. Those already on long trips will have until mid-March to get their vehicles out of here or face having them towed at their expense. Well, the existing park is full, and as the airport grows, we need to provide more capacity. But there's an opportunity here to, to create a great product as well. So now, well beyond the existing long-term parking lot is this new one, right next to the Outlet Mall near the Arthur Lang Bridge. It's conveniently close to the Templeton Canada Line Station, which is free to use to the terminal. Replacing the old lot will be a new six-story parkade. This will be a state-of-the-art parkade. It'll have bridge links to the terminal. It'll have parking guidance to guide you to a stall using red and green lights to, to indicate what's available. Electric charging uh, points. 
The good news is that when finished, there will be a net increase of about 2,200 new parking stalls at YVR. However, it could take three to four years to complete the new parkade. Yeah. It's going to take four years to build, right? Yeah. And uh, four government years, which is eight real years. <laughs> The new long-term lot is also the cheapest at about $15 a day versus 30 in the existing parkade. And there are discounts if you reserve online. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Tomorrow, the federal liberals will deliver the third budget of their mandate, and a lot of people are waiting to see what will be in it for B.C. Keith Baldry joins us with the B.C. wish list. What's on it, Keith? You know, there's a number of items, Chris, and it does change from year to year, but certain uh, canvassing a number of cabinet ministers today, we did come up with some items that I think uh, B.C. is looking for in particular. First of all, transit funding heads the list. Of course, the Broadway subway line and potentially Surrey Light Rail, uh, hoping to see federal dollars there. There's been talk of a new national dr- drug program. That would be big news for B.C. and, and certainly uh, start pairing the cost of our expensive pharmacare program. Child care is obviously an NDP priority. They've already uh, reached one agreement with Ottawa on childcare. Maybe there's more dollars there. Another one, cannabis enforcement. Mike Farmer, Solicitor General, telling us today that uh, the cannabis legalization has been thrust upon the provinces and they're looking for federal dollars to help go beyond just education campaigns to actual enforcement uh, measures. Uh, hoping for money on guns and gangs to fight organized crime. Now, Ottawa has signaled that may be coming down the pipe. And finally, housing partnerships. Another big priority for the NDP government. Hoping, the, at the very least, the feds open up some land to build new housing. We talked to Finance Minister Carol James in the corridor today, and she says when it comes to accessing federal dollars, it's a no-brainer because everybody wins. My hope is that we continue to see the kind of partnerships that have started. Uh, we saw the dollars signed off for child care this past week. I'd like to see more specifics around transit. I'd like to see uh, more specifics around partnerships for housing and dollars coming uh, in partnership with the province because really it's the best bang for our buck. Uh, we'll know exactly what B.C. got on that wish list tomorrow afternoon at 1 p.m., Chris, when Finance Minister Bill Morneau stands up in the House of Commons and delivers his budget speech. Right now, though, the NHL trade deadline comes and goes with the Canucks doing some wheeling and dealing. And Squire Barnes is here with his take on what we gained and what we lost. Let's talk about what, we, what happened. Well, not as much wheeling and dealing, I think, as Canuck Nation had hoped for. Mm-hmm. And the one thing the Canucks did not get at all in either of the trades, they only made two, No draft picks. They wanted draft picks, but nobody was offering draft picks. Instead, what the Canucks got was young players who, maybe they'll they'll become decent players, and maybe they won't. Uh, Okay, here's one of them. Brendan Leipzig, interesting guy. Uh, Leipzig was playing in Vegas. He actually played for Travis Green in junior in Portland, and he was a great junior, but he's kind of struggled to be an NHL or a regular NHL. And the same for a guy named Tyler Mott, who they picked up from Columbus. Now, this was in the Thomas Vanek trade. Philip Holm went for Leipzig. Mott, he came over from Columbus in a Thomas Vanek for Mott. And of all people, UC Jokinen. UC Jokinen has played on four different teams this year. Now, the Canucks traded those two players. Yes, this year. Were other players involved? Were... Other teams looking at other Canuck players is what Jim Benny had to say. We had calls on lots of our players, um, but that's between, you know, the, the converse, those conversations are between me and the other general managers. Um, I would say, you know, we didn't get anywhere close on anything else, um, but we did get calls on some of our players. 
So Vanek's gone, no draft picks in return. So I think for Canuck Nation, not a great day. Mm, sounds like it. All right, thanks, Squire. More sports coming up a little bit later for sure. Right now, though, sports and culture are the perfect mix for a pitch being made in the greater Victoria region. It's officially launching its bid to bring the 2020 North American Indigenous Games to Vancouver Island. Kylie Stanton has the details on what the games would mean and what they would cost. It has a rich history with traditions entrenched in the past. But for the Songhees First Nation, today is all about looking ahead to the future. The Songhees Nation, in cooperation with nations across our great region, are bidding to host the North American Games in July of 2020. Up against Ottawa, Halifax, and Winnipeg. As many as 5,000 young Indigenous athletes will gather to showcase their talents, competing in 14 different sports, everything from kayaking to lacrosse. It's electric. I, I love it. The energy is amazing. It's always fun. It just builds you up. The games are estimated to cost $10 million. The province has already committed $3.5 million, which will be matched by the federal government. It will be up to the host committee to raise the rest through corporate sponsorship. And based on previous games, it's an investment that will pay off. Toronto's numbers they just released were a $44 million economic impact to the region last year. But it's the impact the games will have on the athletes themselves that's really driving the bid. The ability to show the rest of the world who you are and where you come from. Given the current state of Indigenous relations in Canada, along with the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action, backing this bid is backing a generation. It sends a really strong signal to Indigenous youth that we care about them and we care about their futures. Bid presentations will be made to the North American Indigenous Games Council in early May. A final decision is expected by June. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. A buck fifty per liter. The price expected to surpass that mark later this week. This time, the industry is blaming refineries shutting down for maintenance. Another consumer note for you tonight: a warning about life insurance. And a nightmare experience for a B.C. family that thought they were covered. Our Consumer Matters reporter, Andrea, has the story. Anne. Yeah, so frustrating for this mm-hmm. family. Thank you, Chris. Buying life insurance can be very complex. As one North Vancouver family is discovering, their story is a cautionary tale about purchasing insurance and realizing that should you submit a claim, your case will be scrutinized by the insurance company and it may not turn out the way you expect it. Matthew Coughlin dedicated his life to saving others. For close to 30 years, the father of four worked for the BC Ambulance Service as part of the infant transport team transporting BC's most critically ill babies. He also co-owned Executive Air Ambulance. The countless kids that are alive in this province today because of him, it's amazing. Sadly, in August 2016, Matthew was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Six months later, on December 22nd, 2016, Matthew passed away. He was 54. And for the five months that he was sick, he agonized about, you know, I'm leaving you and the kids and we're going to be okay and we've done the right things. But months after Matthew's death, his spouse Tanya says their life insurance claim was denied by the insurer. Words don't do justice to the added stress that this has created. Matthew was a smoker and had a family history of cancer, both of which he disclosed to his insurance provider. 
He was approved for coverage and paid just under $4,000 yearly. Yet according to documents obtained by Global News after his death, Matthews' insurer, the cooperator, stated it had reviewed Matthews' medical records as well as his responses to health questions when he applied for his coverage. The cooperators accusing Matthew of failing to disclose facts that were material to the insurance risk in his telephone interview at the time of application, which included seeking medical attention for workplace stress and sleep apnea. And had Matthew disclosed his complete medical history, the insurance company would not have issued the policy. In a statement to Global News, the cooperators state, After a very thorough and careful review, it was determined that Mr. Coughlin did not disclose known facts that affected his insurance risk. For this reason, the policy was deemed void and a refund was issued for the premiums paid. Tanya has now hired personal injury lawyer Scott Stanley. I think this is a very bad denial. Stanley alleges had the cooperators been aware of Matthew's concerns over sleep apnea and workplace stress, the life insurance company would have still insured him at the same premium. Well, he was investigated for sleep apnea and an insurance company can cancel a policy if they can prove that, hey, had we known this, we wouldn't have sold it to you. But I I say, look, he told you he was a smoker. That's about as bad as it gets, and you sold it to him anyways? Come on. Sleep apnea? A lawsuit has now been filed against the life insurance company. Until then, Tanya says she'll have to wait patiently and hope it works out for her and her children. He dedicated his whole being to making other people's lives better. And now when his kids need something back... It's to me, that's just it's so heartbreaking. Now, for consumers, it's important to take your time when buying insurance. Inform yourself and consult with a broker as you go over every disclosure form before submitting your application. Also, remember, you have choices when buying insurance. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can reach me. There's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. <laughs> Priests throwing snowballs and Romans skiing and tobogganing today as both tourists and locals woke up to find the city covered in a blanket of snow. Famed monuments like the Trevi Fountain were transformed into totally different photo ops. A bout of bitter cold weather originating from Siberia is sweeping across parts of Europe and is expected to last several days. The snow paralyzed the Italian capital for hours hobbling the public transport system and snarling air, road and rail transportation, too. Donald Trump sparking some controversy once again by suggesting that he would have run into that Florida high school during the February 14th massacre, even if he was unarmed. The president also hinting that he wouldn't always be on the side of the National Rifle Association. Thank you very much. From President Trump on the Parkland school shooting, hypothetical heroics. I think I I really believe I'd run in there even if I didn't have a weapon. The president piling on, criticizing the four Florida deputies who may have held back during the attack. They weren't exactly uh, Medal of Honor winners. All right. The way they performed was frankly disgusting. In a meeting with governors, President Trump pledging he's willing to take on the NRA. If they're not with you, we have to fight them every once in a while. But today, no mention of an idea he likes that the NRA does not, raising the minimum age to buy semi-automatic weapons to 21. President Trump did talk about a more controversial proposal, arming certain properly trained educators, a conversation turning confrontational. Educators should educate and they should not be foisted upon this responsibility of packing heat in first grade classes. So I just suggest we need a little 
Less tweeting here, a little more listening. Even the president's senior advisor and daughter is not totally on board. Ivanka Trump with NBC's Peter Alexander. Do you believe that arming teachers would make children safer? To be honest, I don't know. It's an idea that needs to be discussed. Seven states do let school staff carry guns on campus. No teacher should be compelled, but others are concerned about their students and have training and specific uh, capacity, if you've described. For now, changes to gun laws look more likely to come from the states than the federal government. In Congress, a narrow bill to strengthen background checks seems to have the most momentum, but a Senate debate on that has not been scheduled yet with Democrats arguing that bill alone would be insufficient. Still, the difference this time could be the student survivors demanding action. I have been heartened to see children across this country using their voices to speak out and try to create change. Hallie Jackson, NBC News, the White House. It's been three months since a plane carrying two people from Penticton to Edmonton disappeared near Revelstoke, and there are still no answers as to what happened. The official search was called off a few days after the plane went missing, but family members have never stopped searching. It's been an agonizing three months for the family of Ashley Bourgeau. The 32-year-old and her boyfriend, Dominic Neron, were flying back to Edmonton from Penticton when their plane disappeared near Revelstoke. It never stops, just constantly doing something, calling places, looking for help, or my mom goes through photos every day trying to find something. The official search was called off in early December, but the family hasn't given up. They've handed out flyers and asked those in Revelstoke to help with information. Ashley's brother, Richard, spent days in helicopters, on snowmobiles, and on foot searching for any trace of the plane. The snow's this deep. You just walk in there, you're stuck in the snow. It's, the bushes are just thick. You can't even walk past them, so it's really hard to search on foot out there. New tips have narrowed down their search to a 10-kilometer by 1-kilometer area near Griffin Mountain. We have been able to research and calculate with cell pings as well, uh, uh, area where we're pretty sure that they need to be searched. But they've run into a problem. We're at a standstill due to this. We can't get anybody in there. We don't have the funding for it. Um, We don't have the means for it right now. And the longer that things are sitting at dormant, the less chance we have of finding them. They need to know what happened, if nothing else, for Ashley's three kids. They miss their mom like crazy, just every day. Ashley's kids need her home. Her family needs her home. Always thinking about them. There's no luck finding anything yet, but we're not going to give up till we get them home, one way or the other. Quinn Oler, Global News. A huge rock slide has closed a highway in southern Ohio indefinitely. Boulders the size of buildings crashed down onto the road, but luckily no one was hurt. The boulders so large they'll have to be broken up before they can eventually be hauled away. Some sobering new television ads will start airing across B.C., courtesy of the NDP government's new addictions minister. The goal? To convince people that the opioid overdose crisis isn't just devastating to the downtown east side, but to neighborhoods just like, your, just like yours. Aaron MacArthur reports. When you think of the opioid crisis, you probably think of the downtown east side. Husband. But this is what the epidemic really looks like. Father. A new campaign funded by the provincial government is urging all of us to see the issue for what it is. Co-worker. 
a crisis that crosses all walks of life. Neighbor. The latest numbers from the coroner service show that 80% of people who are dying right now in BC are using alone at home, and many of them are young men. Stephanie McCune lost her brother to fentanyl last November. Supporting this campaign, her way of doing something to help other families. Stigma contributes to shame. And when people are feeling shame, when they feel isolated, it's very difficult to be able to reach out for help. Sister. The ad campaign will roll out across BC in the coming days. The government saying spending money in an ad campaign, just one of the first steps in getting a handle on the epidemic. We don't have the kind of system for mental health and addictions care that we need in British Columbia, where you ask once and you get help fast and where every door is the right door. Nowhere is the extent of the crisis more evident than at St. Paul's Hospital. 30% of patients at the Rapid Access Addictions Clinic come from outside the city. People who often have nowhere else to turn for help. We see a lot of variety of uh, folks that come here from, from teenagers, unfortunately. We see as young as that to as old as 71 years old. Neighbor. Expect to see the public service announcements on TV and at sports venues around BC. Friend. The more we all talk about opioids and addiction, the more lives that can be saved. Get involved. Aaron MacArthur. Global News. I'm going to miss it like this. The shot that could have broken a 25-year record and why this college player missed it on purpose. Right after the forecast with Christy, who joins mm. us now. Warming up a little bit towards the end of the week, but uh, what, what's happening between now and then? <laughs> Chance of snow. Ah, I again. know. Yes, again. So we are still entrenched in winter, everyone. And despite the fact that it looked like we were coming out of it at the end of the weekend when the sun came out and started to melt that snow away. No, we're not over uh, done with it just yet. So higher terrain overnight tonight and tomorrow morning. Freezing level is going to drop to about 200 or 300 meters. So somewhat snow possible over higher terrain, anywhere from zero to about two centimeters. So not a lot. Those of you out in the Fraser Valley have a chance of snow or wet snow. The four centimeters is out towards hope. The further west you go, you're moving more towards the zero centimeters, so Abbotsford, for example. However, higher elevations in Abbotsford still could see some snow. Again, that's tonight and tomorrow morning. Here's the reason why. So we've got a major system that is going to drop down from the north, spreading snowfall into the interior. Along the mountain ranges, we'll see two to four centimeters. That's for Whistler as well. And then over to the Rocky Mountains, two to four centimeters there as well. In the interior, we'll see a nice little uh, rain shadow effect, so not a lot expected for you. So that's into tomorrow morning. Tomorrow afternoon, things lighten up, but we've got another system that's going to move in from the west. So that, considering it's moving in from the west, means milder conditions, and that will mean just rain for the south coast. Those of you in the interior, though, will see significant snow on Wednesday, including the Coquihalla. But after that, I want to point out, we are not done with winter. So Thursday into Friday, a very strong pool of cold air is going to push in, and we are right back into chilly conditions, and we have the potential for snow even towards the latter part of the week as well. Here's a look at northern BC. So snow mainly inland, as we talked about, two to four centimeters of snow towards the coast. It is milder. That interior uh, from the central interior down through the south, dry conditions, a couple centimeters of snow in through the uh, Rocky Mountains. And then for the south coast, it's higher elevations and the Fraser Valley that have the potential of snow overnight tonight and tomorrow morning. Otherwise, breaks of sunshine for you tomorrow afternoon. Rain Wednesday 
but then Thursday, Friday, that's when we have the chance of snow once again. No birthdays or anniversaries tonight, but we have this beautiful shot from Agassiz. Thanks to Jacoba for that one. Did I say that correctly? Uh, probably. <laughs> probably. Shrovers? Jacoba Shrovers. Jacoba right. Shrovers. Thanks very much, Christy. Jordan Bohannon is a star player for the Iowa Hawkeyes basketball team, and he had the chance to set a new University of Iowa school record. After being fouled, Bohannon went to the free throw line, make the shot, and he breaks a 25-year-old record for most consecutive free throws, set at 34. But watch what happens. Bohannon missed on purpose to settle for the tie. Why? Well, the record he would have broken belonged to this man, Iowa legend Chris Street, whose record-setting streak only ended when he was killed in a car accident. Bohannon says the record deserves to stay in Street's name. Selfless act. From a very good athlete who had 25 points from the, from the three-point line in that game. So I like that shoot. story. Yeah, yeah, that is a good one. Good. Squires here now. Canucks, uh, we already talked about kind well, of the moves. Well, we did, and we'll made. talk, well... Not many, but we'll, no. talk, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss them more about why they didn't get draft picks. So um, when they took their players to the annual NHL swap meet. All right, Squires here. Okay. Dissecting the moves made today. Yeah, well, I wish they would have made more, but, you know, you can only do what you can do. Yeah. If nobody wants to really give you anything, well, what are you supposed to do? that make any sense? Uh, Thomas Vanek for Tyler Mott and UC Jokinen. Philip Holm for Brendan Leipzig. Those were the two Canuck trades at the deadline. That's like hoping to see Justin Timberlake, but instead you get the karaoke champion of Spuzzum. There were no draft picks to be had for the Vancouver Canucks on deadline day. That was the hope for Jim Benning. But if they want any draft picks, they're going to have to make trades in June. Here's Long shot. Now, it wasn't as if the Canucks didn't try to get draft picks for Thomas Vanek. Well, we, we pretty much talked to every team in the league. Uh, we would have preferred getting picks back. You know, that wasn't available to us. And that's because NHL teams ignored his numbers in Vancouver this season and instead looked at his overall play the last five years. When teams who did acquire Vanek, for the most part, ended up suffering from buyer's remorse. So instead of draft picks, the Canucks got a rapidly fading UC Jokinen, who has played for four teams already this season, and center Tyler Mott, who's been basically more minor leaguer than NHL player so far in his career. He joins Brendan Leipzig, who started his career with the Toronto Maple Leafs before moving to Vegas, another young forward who hopes the Canucks can jumpstart his career. I think in both, in both players we, we got today are both like fast skilled players so we're excited to to end up with getting them at the end of the day now travis green might have had a lot to do with the leipzig trade he coached brendan leipzig when both were in portland with the winterhawks back then leipzig was a big time point getter but he hasn't been able to duplicate that in the nhl like i think we're going to give him a chance in our top nine um you know he's showing this year that he can play in the NHL as kind of a fourth-line player. That's where he's played with Las Vegas. But I think we're going to give him an opportunity to play with more skilled players and see, and so he can see what he can do. Now, the Canucks would have gotten better return if they offered up some of their other veterans, but no trade clauses handcuffed them again 
as it has a few times in recent years. Just like that Louis Erickson contract, that contract will keep him here until the Canucks buy him out. So you could view some of those veterans that Canucks have hanging around as very expensive assistant coaches. Well, we look at the players that have our no-trade clauses as guys now that are left are going to be support players to our young players coming in the next couple of years. So, you know, if you look at the Chris Tanis, the Alex Adlers, the, the the Brandon Sutters, like these guys are going to help our young players and and you know get their careers up and going and help them on the ice and help with leadership off the ice. So, um, you know, I think that you know they're important players for us moving forward and you know we wanted to to keep the the foundation of those guys for the most part it was kind of a dead deadline day most of the deals came just before noon evander kane now a san jose shark maybe he can make the playoffs for the first time in his career paul stastny going to the jets thomas tatar leaves the red wings for vegas Uh, McDonough and Miller from the Rangers to Tampa Bay and Patrick Maroon from the Oilers to the Devils. Those are the main guys moving today. Boy, this is the happiest I've seen a Canucks coach since Elaine Vigneault was behind the bench. Travis Green laughing it up. Usually he's scowling at some Canuck mistake, but that's no mistake. That's a great save off JT Comfort by Jacob Markson, but a late power play goal has Colorado up 1-0 on Vancouver down in Denver. Well, the mere fact Tiger Woods was on the leaderboard and close to challenging gave the Honda Classic a 38% increase in TV ratings over last year. Now, Tiger ended up finishing 12th, but despite everything that has happened, despite being the star of police dash cam videos, if he is even remotely in contention at a tournament, people will watch. He doesn't quite have the golf game he used to have, but he can still draw attention, just like the old days. Funny car legend John Force is out of hospital after a big crash at an NHRA event in Arizona yesterday. Now, he is 68 years old. Two of his daughters, Brittany and Courtney, are also on the circuit. In fact, Courtney won this event while her dad was in the hospital. Here's what happened to John Force's funny car. He's in the far lane, taking on Johnny Lindgren. Wins the race, and then his car blows up. But the worst part about this is the chutes get tangled. And these two cars can't separate and really can't slow down. When they finally hit the wall, Lingren's okay, but John Force, and this is his car right there blowing up again. He didn't get out right away, but they did get him to the hospital. They checked him out, and the legend was good. Here's today's snow report. Whistler Blackcomb, a base close to 300 centimeters. Grouse 422, Cypress 413. 359 Sasquatch with 10 new. Revelstoke a base of 259, Manning Park 216 with 16 new. Powder King a base of 273 centimeters and Mount Washington 230. Big White's base 289 with 12 new, 10 new Silver Star 261 base. Sun Peaks 228 centimeter base, Apex 16 new, the base 274. Coming up on ET Canada, we're behind the scenes with celebrity Big Brother and American Idol. Plus, Oprah and Reese Witherspoon preview their sci-fi fantasy, A Wrinkle in Time. That's coming up at 7, right after the news hour. Back to you, Chris. All right, thanks, Sangeeta. Well, fresh off their record-breaking medal hall in Pyeongchang, Canadian Olympic athletes began arriving back home today. Linda Aylesworth was at Vancouver International, where medalists and maybe even some future medalists were met by family, friends, and, of course, their fans. 
International arrivals at YVR tends to be a happy sort of place, but this morning it was electric. Who are you here to see? Mr. Brulee! <laughs> They're talking about Canada's Olympic men's hockey team forward and bronze medalist Gilbert Brulee. It was an awesome experience. Uh, I know it sounds cliche, but something I'll never forget. It was so much fun. It's uh, going to be different to adjust back to reality now. Bronze medal, baby. <laughs> we came to see our friends, Cassie and Tyler, and uh, celebrate their return from Pyeongchang. Cassie, as in Cassie Sharp, women's half-pipe Olympic gold medalist. Is right here. <laughs> How does it feel to hold that? It's... It's phenomenal. It feels even better to hold it on Canadian soil. It feels good bringing it home. Arriving through the gates at the same time as Cassie, fellow gold medalist Patrick Chan. He almost didn't participate in these games, but happily changed his mind for the sake of Canada's figure skating team. There's a lot of veterans on this team, so we all, I think, performed to our best and of the three Olympics I've been this is by far the best one for me. But you don't have to bring home hardware to be a winner. Just ask Campbell River's own Teal Harley. Fresh from his first Olympics as a member of Canada's freestyle skiing team he did not win a medal and yet. For me my goal going into it was just to land a run in qualifiers and then I ended up making it through to finals and landing a run again and ending up fifth so I'm really happy about that. And while bobsleigh pilot Christopher Spring would rather not be asked what went wrong. Oh, wow. Just like right in there, eh? He, like all the other athletes, can't deny it was an opportunity of a lifetime. Feeling the pride and feeling everybody from Canada being so proud of you and being so happy that you're bringing it home to them and everybody all of a sudden knows you and it's, it's incredible. Linda Aylesworth, Global News.